0: Thanks, didn't know which mic I was supposed to use. (laughs) All right, right, well, let's pray together. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. He appeared also to me. Lord God, we thank you for the scripture from the Apostle Paul and the clarity and simplicity of this gospel truth that we believe in and profess and profess loudly this morning with great joy in our hearts of the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that, Lord Jesus, your resurrection brings us so many benefits and shows us so many things most basically, that our sins are forgiven, that you bore them as a substitutionary atonement for us in our place upon your cross and took them all away. We also know that your resurrection proves that, Indeed, you are, Lord, you are who you said you were, the Son of God, the Son of Man. You've conquered death for us, and it no longer has hold over us, nor does it bring fear into our lives because we know that we have eternal life. And we look forward to our great resurrection on that day after the likeness of your own. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless our worship this morning as you have been, and that you would be blessed as we offer up our worship to you. And now we pray that your word would enlighten our minds and strengthen our hearts and our faith. Amen. Well, Easter Sunday, of course, is the culmination really of a week-long celebration as Christians. We've been looking at the, you know, the Passion Week, hopefully on our own, reading through those those messages. We celebrated on Palm Sunday last week. We had an unusual Good Friday celebration this, this week. We actually did a, a Messiah in the Passover celebration that was wonderful and so well attended and really strengthened our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. And today it's Easter morning. And I really hope you've had a blessed week, too, of meditation and prayer in the scriptures and worship on your own. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, are the central part of our faith. The cross is about our redemption from sin and about Jesus being glorified as the Redeemer. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees to all of us who believe that we're going to share in that same resurrection glory on that final day and eternal life with God. And so we do come worshiping this morning with our hearts filled with faith and hope. And we've read that historical account from the gospel according to John from John's letter this morning. And we're going to now look at Psalm 118 and rejoice that God is good and His love in Christ is forever. And the way we're going to be looking at Psalm 118 today is probably a little different than, than normal and that we'll be focusing on how this psalm really does trace the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we go through it in more of a meditative form, I'll be pointing out to you how it predicts Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection. And so the opening verses of this psalm are pretty, well, they repeat each other. And you'll see that if you look at verse 1, it begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The very last verse says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. So the point of the psalm is very, very clear. It's publicly declaring that God is good, that he's faithful to us, that he loves us, and of course as Christians that above all, this is fulfilled in our lives through Jesus Christ. So when we look at Psalm 118, we shouldn't just look at it as a a psalm of thanksgiving as it is for something in the past, but also a psalm that describes very clearly the passion of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, His suffering and His glory. And we will see that as we go through it this morning. But a very simple outline of the psalm is that in verses 1 to 4 that we are to praise God for His love. His devoted love to us. And then in the middle of the psalm, the heart of it in verses 5 to 21, that we joyfully give thanks to God for the salvation that He has brought to us. And finally, the psalm closes in verses 22 to 29, that we are to esteem God's work. And we're going to do that in esteeming Him for His work in Christ, even more as the fulfillment of the psalm. So a little bit of a background. Psalm 118 is what's known as a processional psalm, a processional psalm of thanksgiving, leading the people up to the temple in Jerusalem. Its original setting we don't know a whole lot about, but there's some kind of a king that's pictured, a member of David's line. Of course, it's a picture of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as the greater son, who would lead God's people back to Jerusalem after some great deliverance that took place under God. And then, of course, the psalm became used often in celebrating God's goodness to His people. And at that time, the leader would often be a priest, and those who might lead the procession would reenact, if you will, this celebration. But the significance of this, this whole collection of psalms, some of you may know, Psalm 113 to 118, is a, is a collection of psalms, and we're looking at the last one, used during the Passover celebration to really just simply celebrate the rescue from Egypt. The people of God rescued from slavery. Well now, this Psalm is used and has been used by the church of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries on Palm Sunday and on Easter Sunday because it was fulfilled in Jesus and we look forward to his return. You know, after Jesus' resurrection, if you continue reading the story, especially from the Gospel of Luke, you get to this famous passage and Luke twenty four forty four, where Jesus says, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms are fulfilled. And that's what we've been doing this season, this year. We looked at Psalm 72 and for Palm Sunday, and today we're looking at Psalm 118 for Easter. Well, as the Psalm begins, it's, it's great praise for God for His devoted love Proclaiming His love. It's very simple. It says, Oh, oh give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. So as the psalm begins, There's this leader calling to various groups of people, really calling upon them to respond to God's salvation with praise. There's the general call at the beginning. Then there's a call upon the laity, the general people. Let Israel say. Then there's a call to the priests. Let Aaron say. And then there's a call even to the converts to praise the Lord. All the people would praise God for his goodness and his love. And since it's a processional psalm that people were moving in procession, it's not just simply the words of affirmation that they're asked to do, but they're asked to shout out reasons why they themselves give God praise and to tell stories to one another. You know, the Hebrew word here for steadfast love is is hesed, and it simply means that steadfast love, but there are many translations for it. True love, faithful love, devoted love, covenant love. There's another translation, an older one, called loving kindness. But you know, this is much more than kindness that's being talked about here. It's a term that expresses a love that's similar to a marriage bond. It's that type of a love. And it's a word that when we read about it in the, in the Bible, we should think of God's covenant love and commitment to us in Christ. Because God has bound himself to us. in his eternal counsel and the covenant of redemption that he put into place with his son, Jesus Christ, in the cross, and in the resurrection. So yes, we too are being challenged by the psalm to proclaim the love of God, and we're to make sure that we don't, we should make sure that we don't overlook such simple and direct application from the Old Testament sometimes. We just read over it. We're supposed to do what it says, and that is to give great praise to God. You know, God the Father's committed to us in His love through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's committed to do us good as His people. And so on a day like this especially, we might want to think about things that, well, what hinders us from doing that? What hinders us from giving praise to God for His goodness? You know, sometimes in our lives, it's just troubles overwhelm us and depress us. It might be simply the weakness of our own flesh. Sometimes it's a matter of some scheme of the devil in our lives. But whatever it might be, when you need a push, if you will, use this psalm. That's what pre- processional psalms are for. That's how we use them, and that is we read them aloud and even loudly to ourselves so that we can get ourselves back in the place that we should be. Well, today, by God's grace, may we publicly declare his praise and his goodness toward us in Christ. Well, now we get to the central movement of this psalm, joyfully thanking God for his salvation. And so let me give you those those four breaks for you uh, it's printed for you in your in your bulletin as well. But verses five to nine, there's this general testimony of the rescued one. Uh, that's the one who's speaking in the psalm, the one who's rescued. So there's a general testimony in verses five to nine, and then in verses ten to fourteen, there's a very specific testimony by the same rescued one as he details what it is this rescue was about. And then interestingly, in verses fifteen to eighteen, all the people get to rejoice as well because they are actually rescued by the one who was rescued. And finally, they enter the temple. Worship is granted for them as a group. And so in verses 5 to 9, it says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So in verses 5 through 7, at the beginning we have this unidentified leader, but we know he's a, a king of David's line as it comes up later in the psalm. And he's given what's a common testimony of everyone who's been rescued by the Lord. He gives praise to God for rescuing him and his confidence is enlarged because of this. And his courage to stand strong is increased. And verse 7 shows the proper perspective that he has regained because of the destruction of his enemies. And these aren't just personal enemies, but the very enemies of God's people. Then in verses 8 and 9, the motto that's really used by all in distress is here for us. You've probably used it in your own life. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man in princes. It's a very good reminder, especially to people like us, many of us, who have access to so many resources, even powerful people, and that we can find our own way out of our troubles. Then on the other hand, there are probably some of us that have very little access to resources of any significance. Yet the temptation is the same. Worldly resources cry out to us, to trust in them, and often we even seek them out to our own shame. And stumbling in this area, do I trust the Lord or do I trust in myself or other resources I have, causes us actually to fluctuate in our hope for God. And certainly God uses all sorts of means to get his purposes accomplished, but there's a huge difference when we trust in the means as God's means, God's ways of delivering us. And, from our res- and rescuing us from our trials. Well, let's take a look at Jesus for a moment. I said we were going to do this at the end of each little section. So, our Lord Jesus Christ, while he was on the earth, he had access to great power in the midst of his suffering in his life, and especially on his cross. For example, it's even noted in the scriptures, legions of angels. He had access to all of that, but he didn't use it. Rather, he entrusted himself to the one who was able to save him from death. He is actually the best model of the rescued one from Psalm 118. And we're going to see it over and over this morning. And we are his disciples. And God's desire to follow him is clear. You know, in the New Testament, verse 6 here is quoted for us to imitate Jesus from Psalm 118. Hebrews 13, 6 says... We confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And then we move on to the next section in verses 10 to 14. And a specific testimony is given. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So here we find out about the true nature of the problem of this king and the people. They're threatened by the hostilities of all the nations surrounding them. It might have been... A reference to a very specific historical situation that we don't know about yet. But maybe more satisfying is to look at this and view it as a very poetic description of all the problems that we face. Either way, it's a description that fits so well our experiences of being overwhelmed by troubles. I mean, this is how we feel so often, isn't it? It may not be exactly true that everyone is against me. How often do we use that phrase, the world hates me, everyone is against me. You notice that four times in this little section, it's emphasized the king is surrounded, I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded. And the attacks are pictured as swarming bees, describing perhaps a close and a raging attack from every direction and every place. But in the end, they're not deadly. The attack is also pictured as fire of thorns, just a quick flash, but eventually it's easily distinguished. And we're to hear this refrain of confidence because the surrounded, surrounded, surrounded is answered then by three phrases, I cut them off, I cut them off, I cut them off, in the name of the Lord. So the power of the victory is declared here as coming from God. And it takes us back again to the very beginning of the psalm. And the reason that would be the case is because God's committed covenant love toward him. So let's look at our Lord Jesus Christ a moment. Again, our Lord Jesus Christ lived out the fulfillment of this psalm and most gloriously of all. He's the one we're really talking about in this psalm, you know. And that's where we'll get to in verses 22 to 27. it will make it very clear. But you know, Jesus' enemies when he walked this earth, were furious like bees. They were intense like a flaming fire, but they were summarily defeated by God. For example, during his life in Luke chapter 11, verse 53, it's recorded, and when Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. You've probably experienced that before, Two, These are how evil people with their evil schemes operate their evil. And then, of course, in his death, in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, the church prayed, actually, after his ascension, these words, that by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said... Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And then we get to verses 13 and 14, and the conquest itself is affirmed and Christ specifically defeating death in his resurrection. The reference, of course, is to the Exodus, when the people left slavery in Egypt, and the song of deliverance in Exodus 15 is referred to here very directly in verses 13 and 14. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name see, the psalmist was about to fall, but the divine warrior stepped in and took the victory. You see, the exodus is a pattern for God's saving acts throughout history of redemption, used repeatedly in the Old Testament and in the New, fulfilled specifically in Jesus Christ. For in the cross and resurrection, we are rescued from sin in the final exodus, if you will. But yet we look forward to Jesus' return in glory, and then it will be complete. Well, then there's the joy of all the peoples over God's rescue of them in the rescued one in verses 15 to 18. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So in these verses, beginning of verses 15 and 16, other voices start to join the celebration of God's rescue of this king. Victory and salvation are events that are shared among all God's people. And notice that it's the right hand of the Lord that granted the victory. It shows that it was a single-handed victory, if you will, by God himself, getting all the glory. And again, it takes us back to that victory song from Exodus. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You know, our joy is easily identified today as God's people. It's the joy we share in the victory of God in Christ. We've been rescued in the rescued one, Jesus Christ, rescued from sin. In verses 17 and 18, the main character again speaks of God's glory through it all, the severe discipline, and ultimately the victory. He's alive and not dead, all to the praise of God's power. So when we look at Jesus Christ fulfilling this psalm, we can reflect upon His experience of suffering or discipline, if you will, and resurrection. And then even the joyful participation of victory in the heavens by all the people of God after His ascension. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, starting at verse 10, it says, it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Psalm 118 still speaks. Christ still speaks, even through this psalm in its fulfillment. And then we get to the temple entrance to worship this rescued one and his group, in verses 19 to 21. What's happening here in verses 19 to 21 is really a ceremony. And so it begins in verse 19 as the king and his people approach the gates. They say, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then the reply of the gatekeepers is a challenge by saying, this is the gate of the Lord the righteous shall enter through it. In other words, is this king worthy? Is he righteous enough? Well, it's a ceremony to display that that's exactly true, that that's what's going on. And then in verse 21, after entering, I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The king shows up in righteousness with his righteous ones and gains entrance and gives his unswerving allegiance to God. Now we look to Jesus Christ, entering the true holy of holies in the heavens on our behalf. Jesus Christ is the ultimate righteous one who enters heaven on his own merits, fully righteous by divine standards, not human ones. And we are able to enter with him, not because of our merits, but only because of his. And what he has accomplished for us on his cross. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 it says. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. A mere copy of the true one. But into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 21. The gospel is simply declared. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so today we joyfully give thanks to God for our salvation. Jesus Christ is the rescued one in this psalm, the one who then rescues us. He was rescued from the cross, if you will, as the sin bearer by his resurrection. And then we then are the rescued ones, not him ultimately, as he rescues us. And so we're filled with joy over Jesus Christ and his accomplishment and declare his praise. But that's not all there is to the psalm. The final movement is the part where we esteem God's work. And the psalm ends with the whole community, from verse 22 to the very end, the whole community of the righteous from the temple, giving praise to God for his deliverance and exalting the king. But the psalm ends also for us, with us as the people of God, giving praise to him for his work in his son and exalting him. And so the rejected one is made the chief cornerstone in verses 22 to 23. So we learn more about the troubles of this king. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So here's the vindication for the king. So apparently he was even opposed from within his own kingdom by leaders We don't really know much about the original circumstance of the psalm, but he receives now proper placement and prominence among the people, and his enemies get revealed for who they really are, and they get deposed. Now, if we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, we know how often this passage is quoted in the New Testament, even by Jesus. This passage is quoted seven times by him. Jesus himself. Thirteen times in the New Testament, this whole section is put together. And Jesus was opposed by many people, legions of demons, even the leaders from Jewish people. And after his work and suffering of vindication, he became the cornerstone of the new people of God. This is how he would quote the verse often. From the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And then this, these words of Jesus are picked up by our Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 and Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read a part of Ephesians 2 to you. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens speaking to the Gentiles, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself becoming the cornerstone. That's the foundation of the church, Jesus and his apostles with that gospel. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Apostle Peter wrote similarly, tying Psalm 118 together with Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28, and speaks of Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very corner itself. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received. And then backing up a little bit, Jesus' vindication was announced by Peter and reported by Luke in an evangelistic section in Acts chapter 4 after the ascension, after the giving of the Spirit, where he said, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which... rejected by you the builders has become the very corner and there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved but if you put your faith in Jesus Christ Easter would be a wonderful day to do so and then finally we get to the rescued one becoming the blessed one in verses 24 to 27 We read, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So the rejoicing in the context of the psalm, going back to that for a moment. So they've come in to the town And now it's time for festive celebrations. But of course, even more so in the New Testament, we see it reenacted really on Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. In the Psalm, those in the temple bless their king and the people of God bless him in the name of the Lord and they declare it to be a day of light and a day of great sacrifice and joy. Hosanna, meaning save, send us prosperity or success is really a call for the great king It's a call ultimately for the greatest king of all, Jesus Christ, and for his day and that more glorious day. So we're immediately reminded when we read these words of Palm Sunday, the reference to Psalm 118 is throughout all four gospels. And in Mark chapter 11, it simply says, And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And we considered the meaning and the hope of this kingdom last week when we looked at Psalm 72. So here we are, looking at Christ in this psalm, and we see that even all of this brief section refers to Jesus Christ, verses 26 to 27 especially. He is the eternally blessed one. And it's the case that in verse 26, those who are with him are blessed as well. And Jesus would quote this portion of Psalm 118 as judgment upon his enemies for not recognizing the blessed one, referring to himself. And he's the one who would bring light to people. In John chapter 12, it's recorded that Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Speaking of himself and his impending departure, walk while you have the light. That darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. But of course, most important fulfillment of this little section is the part about the festive sacrifice because Jesus Christ himself would willingly offer up himself at the altar of his cross for us. And then finally, We get to the reprise of praise at the end in verses 28 to 29. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. The same words from the beginning of the psalm, the beginning of the message, to offer praise. And we say thanks when we get to the end, that this God is my God, and that this God is our God. And from a fulfillment perspective of Psalm 118, We say that God is good and His love in Christ is forever, and we esteem God's work in Jesus Christ even more. And so we know then why, as we get to the end of Psalm 118 in this brief accounting of it, New Testament believers throughout the centuries love the Psalm so much and why it's always been a part of the celebration of Passion Week and Easter, because the Psalm is really about Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at it from three different perspectives this morning. We considered the original setting a little bit about the Davidic king of the psalm that it's talking about. We considered a little bit how it was used after that as a historical psalm. But of course, we considered it most importantly as a fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We, you know, we are one with Jesus. We're united with him in his resurrection by faith. And so we should leave here this morning with great praise and large confidence in God an increased courage to be able to stand firm in our faith, a clarified perspective on our future and our eternal destiny. Romans chapter 8, 31 says, for if God is for us, who is against us? You hear the echo of Psalm 118 verse six there? Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? He is, God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. You know, Easter Day reminds us that we've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And that when Christ, whose our life is revealed, will also be revealed with him in glory. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your holy word. This scripture, that speaks the truth of your great covenant love for us, that it's forever, and that we're to give you praise and thanks, but also beyond that, to challenge us as Christians to see that our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of your faithfulness toward us. And this Easter Sunday that we celebrate, Lord Jesus, your resurrection is something we truly, really celebrate every Sunday, and it's why we worship on Sunday, because it's the day of resurrection. And so we pray that this Easter joy of ours will be something that carries with us throughout the weeks and gets culminated every Sunday for us as we gather as your people and worship you and publicly declare that you are good and your love is faithful and endures forever. Amen.